second reading is on page 970. So if this is your first time today, we're doing a series going through the Old Testament book of Malachi, page 970. We're up to chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 to 12. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, page 970. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Well, do please keep that open. Theft is a big problem here in London. Uh, If you wear a luxury watch, watch out because 6,000 a year are stolen, you may well find yourself mugged in broad daylight by a machete-wielding thief. Be careful with your mobile phone. 70%, 70 of all thefts in London are phones, so if the pickpockets don't get it, the guys on the moped may well. Bike theft, big business. Mine went from the back garden. Callum and I saw someone in the wharf cutting through a bike lock with an angle grinder in the middle of the day. A 1,000-pound bike can be sold for 500 on Gumtree. And if you get a delivery, don't leave the parcel outside for too long, because if you do, the thieves may well help themselves. Theft is a big problem. How does theft make you feel? It's appalling, isn't it? It's so widespread, shocking. We may feel more needs to be done to clamp down on theft in London. But the question for today is this. Are you a thief? So me, a thief? Absolutely not. You know, what outrageous suggestion. But some of us today, some of us may be thieves without being aware of it. That is the big reveal in the Bible passage from Malachi that I just read. So in it, God accuses his people of being thieves, robbers, and stealing from God himself. Now, this is an accusation we need to take really seriously. As Romans 2.21 puts it, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? And we we may well be without realising it. And it's all to do with money and giving. So as believers, how important is giving money? How much should we give? What should be our motivation for giving? 
Uh, isn't what I do with my money, isn't that my business? These are the kind of questions addressed by this passage today. Now, I'm always a bit wary of talking about money and giving uh, from the front. If you're new to the barge, uh, we don't do it very much. And if you're not a Christian here today, if you're looking into Christian things, we're not after your money. Please don't give. Why don't we talk about money uh, very much? Partly it's cultural. that It's seen as being you know, a very personal matter. Partly it's because we're aware that false teachers are often driven by greed. So we don't want to be sort of lumped in and confused with them. And you'll have read of the latest scandal to hit the headlines this past week uh, with TB Joshua and his megachurch in Nigeria. But biblically, money and giving is a really, really important issue, biblically. So we need to teach on it, and it's what this passage in Malachi confronts us with this week as we go through this book together. So you'll see on the outline uh, inside your service sheets, the passage begins uh, in verses 6 to 7 with a call to return to God. So if you've got the passage open there in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me. This was uh, the 5th century BC. God's people had come back to the land of Judah from exile in Babylon, but, but they hadn't come back to God. So although they'd returned to the land, they hadn't returned to the Lord. Return to me, says the Lord. It's personal. We've seen before that they had rebuilt the temple. They were attending temple worship. But they were just going through the motions and their hearts were far from God. They professed to be God's people, but their lives during the week said otherwise. Return to me says the Lord. And what God said to them then, he says to us today, return to me. Maybe you can identify with God's people back then. It's possible to come to church, even to come quite regularly, but just be going through the motions and our heart is far, far from God. Or maybe like them, maybe we say that we're believers but it doesn't actually make much difference to our life or any difference to our life during the week. Or maybe we're aware that there's some sin that we must be turning from, we need to turn from. And today God says to us, return to me. Maybe you had a Christian upbringing, but you drifted over the years and you've recently started coming back to church. Returning to church is a good first step. It's a good first step, but more than that, God says, return to me. Or maybe you're not a Christian at all. Maybe you've, you've recently started looking into Christian things. The word for return here, it can also be translated simply as turn. So God is calling you not to return, but to turn for the first time to him. Whoever we are, it is urgent that we do this, that we return to the Lord, because Judgment is coming. We saw that last week. Uh, Back in chapter 3, verse 5, just back a page, God warned in 3, 5. He said, I will draw near to you for judgment. God is patient, 
But Romans 2.4 warns us, it says, Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so if we strayed like lost sheep, we need to come back and we need to do that quickly before it's too late. And if we do that, well, if we do that, the Lord will return to us. That's what it says here in verse 7, 3, 7. Return to me and I will return to you. So the call to return is followed by this promise. God had turned away from his rebellious people because of their sin, but if they returned to him, he would return to them. As James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But we may think, well, will God really accept me? Hasn't he had enough of me? Well, back then, if God had given his people what they deserved, he would have wiped them out a long time ago. So verse 6, the passage begins, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. See, it's only because of God's grace that he hadn't destroyed them and us too. I mean, our track record, it ain't so great either, is it? Well, thank God for his unchanging mercy. But... We must not presume on that grace. We must return to God without delay today. End of verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? And the sense of this is, why are you telling us to return? We're not doing anything wrong. That's the sense that they were pushing back. They were dismissing this call to return as they've done throughout this book. This has been the pattern. And this is really important to see. We may think that we are doing fine spiritually, but that doesn't mean we are. We may feel all is well with God, but that doesn't mean it is. God's word is the judge. So they thought they were fine, but God then told them that actually, he said, you're a bunch of thieves. And it may be that we are too, and that's our second point. You shall not steal is there in the Ten Commandments. comes in at number eight. And when we hear that, we think about the crimes of nicking bikes, nicking mobiles from other people. And it would never occur to us in a million years that you could steal from God. But look at verse eight. Verse eight, God says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And we think, what? Surely not. I mean, it sounds crazy. Who would dare to do that? And how could you do it anyway? And so the people push back in verse 8, but you say, how have we robbed you? The people back then thought they were not guilty. They assume it's been some sort of software error. They've been wrongly convicted of theft, like those poor people have been in the post office scandal. And we may feel the same. We may feel, well, there's no way that I have robbed God. But in verse 8, he presents the evidence. So look at verse 8. God replies, in your tithes and contributions. That's how they've done it. In stingy giving. Stingy giving 
is robbing God. They were robbing God, he says, in their tithes and their contributions. What does that mean? Tithe means a tenth. That's what the word means. It means a tenth. And the concept first comes up in the Bible in Genesis 14.20. I put all the references in the footnotes. So this is where Abraham meets this guy Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. And we read, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Then in Genesis 28 verse 22, Jacob vows to God, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This then became compulsory under the Old Testament law. So Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, Every tithe of the land, so every tenth part of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So a tithe, a tenth of all the produce, was for the Lord. And also of the livestock, so... In verse 32 of that passage, Leviticus 27, 32, it says, And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. What did they do with this tithe, with this tenth part? What did did they do with it? Well, they brought it to the temple in Jerusalem. What was the point of that? Well, two things. Firstly... It was acknowledging that everything they had was from God. So bringing 10% wasn't saying 10% of what they had belonged to God and 90% was theirs. 100% of what we have is from God. So 1 Chronicles 28, 14, David says, All things come from you, and of your own we have given you. So giving back a tenth was a way of expressing this Thanks to God for graciously giving them everything. That was the first thing. Secondly, the point of giving a tenth was to support those who served at the temple or the tent of meeting before then. So the Levites, who were the assistants to the priests, they lived off these gifts from the people. So the Levites, they didn't have any land. This was their income. So Numbers 18.21 says, Uh, God says, to the Levites I have given every tithe, so every tenth in Israel, for an inheritance in return for the service that they do. And then every third year, it was a way of supporting the needy among God's people in the community. So Numbers 14 talks about the refugee and the orphan and the widow. So that's what the tithes were. Then the the contributions mentioned in verse 8, they were the offerings for the priests. So a portion of the animal sacrifices was set apart for for the priests to eat for their meals. So Exodus 29, 28 says of these offerings, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. So that was, that's what was going on. The people were not giving the tithes and the contributions that they were supposed to. And this, God says, was essentially robbing him. It was stealing from him. Now, what is this saying to us 
as New Testament believers. We need to put our New Testament specs on. We need to read this through New Testament lenses. And we can draw four lessons from this I put on your sheets there. Firstly, giving is a spiritual issue. Giving is a spiritual issue. That is to say, to turn or to return to the Lord, it must impact our wallets. It must impact our bank accounts. So relationship with God has implications for what we do with our money. We cannot be in relationship with God and tell him to stay out of our finances. What we do with our money is a spiritual issue. Now, that is why Jesus, in his teaching, had a lot to say about money. He said, Matthew 6, 24, he said, You cannot serve God and money. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. The New Testament warns us about the love of money, which it says is a root of all kinds of evils, And it warns us that it leads some people away from the faith. So giving is a spiritual issue. Secondly, giving is serious. So when the people didn't give the tithes and the contributions that they should have, God didn't just say, ah, you know what, it's not a big deal. Okay, the Levites will miss out a little bit, but you know, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. Now God said, you are robbing me. Robbing God is a serious crime. If we are not honoring God with our money, in our giving, we are robbing him. It's a big deal. Imagine uh, walking down the street tomorrow, and you hear someone shout out, Stop thief! And you turn around to see what's going on, and everybody is pointing at you. And in fact, a big finger from heaven is pointing at you. How would we feel? Thirdly, giving, Christian giving, is to support Christians. We don't have uh, a temple anymore. That was Old Testament. The church, God's people in Christ, is the temple now, is the New Testament temple God is building And although we don't have priests, we don't have Levites anymore, what we do have are gospel workers, church pastors, staff teams, missionaries, and they get their livelihood from Christian giving. So the staff here at the Barge, our mission partners, other gospel workers overseas. And as back then, so today, there are needy Christians. The refugees, the orphans, the widows who need supporting. Here and in other parts of the world, especially in situations of persecution. And so we might give to organizations like Open Doors or Barnabas Fund. And you'll you'll remember that the Apostle Paul's collection in the New Testament was for needy Christians in Jerusalem. So Christian giving is to support Christians in gospel work or in practical need. And yes, we can do good to others as well, but this should be our priority And no one else will give to this. And fourthly, giving should be generous. As New Testament believers, we are not under 
the old covenant, we are under the new covenant. The tithe, this giving of the tenth, was part of the law in the old covenant. There is no mention anywhere in the New Testament of Christians giving 10%. Instead, we are told simply to be generous and to be ready to share. That's 1 Timothy 6. We're to do this in response to God's amazing grace to us in Christ. His indescribable gift, as we heard in our first reading. We're told we are to excel in this act act of grace. We're told we are to make up our own mind before God how much we are going to give. So it says in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're told to give in proportion to our income, 1 Corinthians 16. We're told to give secretly, not telling others what we give. So Jesus said in Matthew 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some of us may find this kind of freedom frustrating. We want to be told exactly how much to give. We say, Give me a figure, give me a percentage. But in the New Testament, it's left up to us before God. Now, some churches do teach tithing. And they even make it a condition of church membership that you have to give a tenth. I think that is mistaken, and I think it is legalistic. Now, you may find the Old Covenant 10%. You may find that a helpful guide. Or you may think that as a New Testament believer, you should be a lot more generous than that. It's up to you before God. And it will depend on your circumstances. So if you are on state benefits, for example, you need to be careful that you don't make yourself more dependent on others through giving too much. If, by contrast, you are on a high income, 10% might be ridiculously low, unhelpfully low, because the other 90% is much, much more than you need, and maybe giving 50% would be much more appropriate for you. Whatever we give, we need to keep remembering that everything we have, not just our money, is from God. And our giving is just a grateful recognition of that. Do you remember Jesus said, this is Mark 12, he said, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He took a coin, and the point was that as a coin bears the likeness of an earthly king, so we bear the image as people of the heavenly king. We belong to him. Lock, stock and barrel, we belong to him, and we are to give our whole lives to him in his service. But let's face it, giving money, uh, being generous, it is a challenge for all of us. It does not come naturally to any of us. We fear losing out, don't we, if we're generous. But the rest of the passage gives us a great incentive for obeying God's command to be generous. So God promises great blessing to to give us, and that's our final point. So look with me at verse 9. God says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The nation was guilty of theft. Uh, They were guilty of robbing God. The punishment was his curse. And the curse resulted in crop failure because of drought and locusts. 
under the Old Covenant, this is how things worked. So in Deuteronomy, God laid out very clearly these kinds of consequences for disobedience. Well, how about now? How about under the New Covenant? Am I cursed by God if I don't give generously? We certainly deserve to be cursed. I mean, if we were judged on our giving, we'd all be cursed, wouldn't we? I mean, which of us could say that we have always given generously, sacrificially, willingly? Only one person has, and it's not you, and it's not me. Jesus is the perfect, generous giver. He gave everything, didn't he, for us? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. We deserve to be cursed. But Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So if we are in Christ, does that mean that we can just ignore God's commands without consequences, not be generous? Well, no. Hebrews talks about our Heavenly Father, that in love He disciplines us. And we can expect that, I think, if we are stingy givers. By contrast, God promised blessing to the faithful giver. So look at verse 10. He said, bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so that it won't destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. If God's people repented, if they sorted out their giving, if they brought in the full 10% rather than just a part of it, what did God promise? He promised abundant blessing. He said he he would open the floodgates of heaven. He would pour down the rain that the crops needed and which he had withheld. He would get rid of the locusts. And then they would enjoy such overflowing prosperity that even the other nations would notice. So verse 12, the passage ends, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Again, under the old covenant, this was the deal. Obey, and I will bless you materially. How about for us under the new covenant? The verse I mentioned back in Galatians 3, it goes on like this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that's telling us, if we have faith in Jesus, we are blessed by God. But then we might say, well, is that it? Does it not matter then how we live as believers? Is there no benefit? Is there no kind of extra blessing for obedience? and for generosity in our giving? Well, I think there is. In Acts 20, Paul speaks about, he talks about working hard, giving to those in need, and then he says this, Acts 20, verse 35. It is more blessed, he said, to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, he says, give, and it will be given to you. So clearly there is blessing for generosity and for giving. But what form does this blessing take as New Covenant believers? 
So if we give generously, will God open the floodgates of heaven and give us back more money? Is that the deal? So are the prosperity gospel preachers, are they right after all? So does it work like this, that if you put a thousand pounds into a savings account, you'll only see 5% growth, but if you give it to the gospel, then then you'll get back 30% or 60% interest. Well, that'd be nice. Actually, that isn't the way it works. It's better than that. On the sheet, three things. Firstly, in the New Covenant, God promises eternal reward. So when talking about giving, Jesus tells, tells us, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he says, your father who sees your giving in secret, he'll reward you. He's speaking about heavenly eternal reward. Secondly, in the new covenant, God promises present provision. That is, as we give generously, God will provide for all our needs. So in Philippians 4, Paul thanks the Philippian believers for their giving to him, and he says this, my God will supply every need of yours. Now, not every want, not every desire, but every need. He's got our backs. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, he said, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. He says your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, food, clothing, and so on. So eternal reward, present provision. Thirdly and lastly, spiritual growth. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10, the generous giver is promised this. God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way for all your generosity. The harvest of your righteousness. That could mean the harvest of righteousness in our own lives, so in growth, in godly character. Or maybe it could be a harvest of righteousness in the lives of others, through us. Or maybe it's both of those. But God promised an increased harvest spiritually. Maybe we've begun 2024 thinking, I would love to grow more this year spiritually. I'd really love that. I'd love to become more godly. I'd love to grow in faith and hope and love in 2024. That'd be amazing. I'd love for the fruit of the Spirit to fill me more. And I'd love to be used more in the lives of other people to encourage believers, to reach out to unbelievers. You know, I feel I'm in a rut spiritually. I really want to move forward. I want to grow. I want to have the joy and the peace that comes with that. And God says, fantastic ambitions for 2024. Love it. And I promise you, I promise you that growth will be yours if, if you'll do this for me. Sort out your giving. Stop being stingy. Start giving generously, sacrificially, willingly. Or maybe take your generosity to new levels. And we think, uh, okay, <laughs> is this for real? Is God really going to deliver? And God says here in the passage, he says, put me to the test. He says, try me. Step out in faith, believe my promise, see what happens.
Let's pause to reflect on what we've heard and then we're going to join in prayer together.